This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey, all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom mask making gulf coast cosmos comic book co-owning asian american podcasters associations golden crane award-winning podcaster oh i need to stop that that's too many things in this podcasting game and i'm very excited today because we are doing something completely different for militantly mixed um in lieu of all of the people that i have now been able to invite into my family as aunties and cousins. I have partnered with Teresa Stovall, author of Swirl Girl, uh, a memoir about coming of race in the USA, and Sonia Smith-Kang, which, again, long list of things that we can we can say. The president of the Multiracial Americans of Southern California, head of the Culturist, dot, is it dot .us, I guess, is, mm-hmm. the, is the site, and uh, Mixed Up Clothing. And we have gotten together to create a collective of mixed-race aunties that are here to provide a resource to our community within mixedness to offer support, to offer advice, maybe the occasional judgment. Uh, but all through love and a safe space. And we've gotten together to start working on different aspects of mixedness and, and how we can provide support and resources to our community. And today we are joined by Dr. Yaba Blay, the creator, author of One Drop. I finally got my copy. I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, this is Shifting the Lens on Race, and it is both a, a, a written and photographic book of people who identify as Black, mixed Black, or from the Black uh, diaspora. And so we are getting together to, to talk about all of the things related to One Drop and what that means to us as ambiguous mixed race presenting people and also what it means to, to Dr. Blay. So are y'all ready to get into it? Let's Okay. <laughs> so we want to start out a little bit by by kind of talking about auntieism, uh, which we, uh, Teresa and Sonia and I have been meeting for the last couple of months. And we didn't know what we were meeting about. We just felt compelled to get together and, and kind of work in a collective. We didn't know what we were going we were going to be creating. Um, and this is sort of our first uh, dipping our toe into what the collective is doing. So Teresa, St- Sonia, do you want to talk a little bit about auntieism to you and then we can get into it? Yeah. One of the things that I think was the genesis for this is that in various online mixed spaces, largely on Facebook, somewhat on Instagram, and more recently on Clubhouse. Um, there are lots of, there's, there's, finally, there's a lot of, a lot of constructive chatter going on. But I, for the last few years, I've noticed uh, Sonia in these spaces, paid attention to her, liked her, like where she was coming from, like the energy and the wisdom, clarity. She brings a lot of clarity conversations. I 
uh, discovered Charmaine last year when I started promoting my book and we instantly bonded and um, adopted each other just within seconds. And um, <laughs> it, similarly, she, I find that when she's in these spaces, she brings a level of um, Charmaine has, I think what Charmaine brings is real sensitivity and empathy and a way of navigating young people's today's much more detailed, complex examinations of identity, be it gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, everything that is that, that are kind of new for, for us older folks. And she's very, very fluid and grace, graceful. And I always, always learn from her. And so these, so both Sonia and Charmaine both became my go-to people when there would be, when I'd see something in one of these spaces and got tired of arguing in the spaces, <laughs> I'd be hitting them up on the side like, yo, did you see this? Or did you hear this clubhouse thing? It kind of went left, da, da, da. And we just kind of all, it was a natural coming together because I think the role that all of us play and in most of these spaces, I am by far chronologically the oldest person um, and the person who's been thinking, writing, obsessing about these things for the longest time, both personally and publicly, creatively. Um, that we all kind of slid into what would, you know, colloquially be called the auntie space. We'd say, well, listen, babies, that's really interesting. Let me give you a little perspective where you might want to also consider, or by the way, in 1980, this is what happened before you were born, you know, those kinds of things. And like I was born during segregation and long before loving. So, you know, all those kinds of things. And so that's what I think we bring. I think we bring a combination of warmth and wit and wisdom. Love yeah, so I think it, in talking about this, I think some of the things that we uh, when we would get together on these calls were, you know, somebody was cooking, namely me. Uh, somebody was on her podcast, you know, figuring out what what uh, the next segment was. Uh, Teresa was listening to music. And so we, you know, or dropping, you know, tunes. And so when we got around to you know, listening and, and no, she brought up, you know, um, a, a different topics and we were all kind of just trying to figure out what it meant to, to be in this space. Uh, so, um, I think without further ado, we just kind of start with, you know, what today's theme means to us. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. What Absolutely. about you, Teresa? What is, what's today's, uh, for you, what does that bring up for you? Today's topic. Today's topic: one drop shifting the lens on race. The topic and the book. What they represent for me is my whole life <laughs> and my work. Um, are exist in this space. Are rooted in this space. My life purpose, which I uh, receive and am continually uh, reminded by from by my ancestors. Uh, this is this is this is why I'm here. This is why I'm in this body phenotype. Blah blah blah. And so. Fortunately, I learned all of that at a very young age, so I've been very rooted and grounded. And so it, what it re this represents for me is I believe this is the first time in U.S. history, pop culture, where there is a sustained, ongoing, super public conversation about these topics. It doesn't, it, it used to rise and fall. Tiger Woods, nothing else for three years. Another celebrity, nothing else for five years, you know, whatever. Um, now it's, right? And even when a celebrity comes in and bumps it for a minute, it never goes away. And, it, and it's taking place largely in the digital space, which gives us opportunities to communicate as we've never, ever had before. There's so much power there, so much potential for connecting, so much potential for 
throwing out everybody's perspectives out into the world. And so for me, what it means is um, how we are now assessing I, mixed black identity. That's my wheelhouse. That's my specialty, mixed black. Um, mixed black identity in the United States today and then for, furthermore, you know, in the world, but especially in the United States, how we're looking at it, uh, including and beyond census categories. Right. Including and beyond census categories and the, the many ways that many different people and now we're into multi-generational mixedness. Right. And we got people who are six or seven or eight different mixes have diff different things, and you know, mixed with different things. And so it's only going to be more get, keep getting more complex and more and more people want specificity and accuracy in how they're publicly identified including and way beyond mixed or even black people. Every group is pushing for that now, which just complicates it, but I think also creates the potential for us to move out of some of these really restrictive binaries and really limiting categories to reframe them in ways that hopefully are more evolved and more humane. That's what it means to me. Uh, and you selected a song that uh, that reflects the theme today and sort of how you feel. So do you want to introduce a song and then I'll play a little snippet of it without. Yes. Well, the first thing that came, you know, I'm a music person um, come from a musical family. And so I always whenever I hear or see the phrase one drop, I always have, hear in the background, Bob Marley, classic, feel it in the one drop. Right. Feel it in the one drop. I'm going to play a little bit. can't go wrong with some Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would play more, but I'm I'm sure there's a violation of the copyright somewhere. <laughs> no, that um, was perfect. That was perfect. So that song, uh, I I am one of the younger aunties. I'm 43. I I actually have not heard that song. My dad played a lot of Bob Marley when I was a kid, but I, I couldn't identify it. So that was new to me that that even existed, um, which was crazy because representation, you search for representation all the way. And One Drop was something that the time that I was growing up, the 80s and 90s, uh, that was the way I got to present my mixed blackness wherever I went. Like I had a black dad. Oh, OK, you're black. One Drop. And people would yell out One Drop back then. I don't think that that's as um, uh, commonly brought up, I guess, in, in terms of casual things with the younger the, the younger generation. Uh, Sonia, you also had um, something that you. Yeah, for me, uh, in thinking about today's topic and um, I couldn't uh, I could bring up my Kindle because that's where I read the book. Uh, so uh, but um, for me, it was I I identify uh, several ways, depending on the day, the the uh, the the crowd, the you know, whatever I'm talking about. Um, my father's African-American. My mom is Mexican. Um, I usually say I'm black and Mexican, or I say I'm um, uh, Afro-Latina. I go Blackskin. It, it just whatever day you catch me 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I was uh, born in Puerto Rico. My parents were in the service. Um, and so I was born in Puerto Rico. So this, uh, which has, of course, you know, the African influence as well as, you know, of course, Spaniards and uh, the uh, Indian background as well, the Taino. So for me, it is around food. And the food that kind of resonates with me is the mofongo, which is a dish of green plantain that is uh, kind of smushed together with some vegetables and garlic and is just in this mound. And it kind of represents, you know, who I am. Um, and so when I think of the one drop and I think of uh, identity, it's, it's mofongo. And it's something that is uh, not only tasty, but it's just different things going into this dish. And it kind of reflects who I am. So if I was a dish, I'd be the mofongo. (laughs) Dr. Blay, um, I I know that based off of your book, your your identity isn't a a mixed black identity. Can you talk a little bit about your your identity um, and, and how you access the one drop? And then if you also have something that you would like to share in terms of what uh, one drop means to you, food, pop culture, what what have you? Um, Well, identity wise, I identify as black with a capital B. I am first generation American-born Ghanaian. Both of my parents are from Ghana, immigrated to this country. I had me. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. So identity is something that's always been at the fore of my existence in terms of questioning who I am and where I fit. You know, I'm not of mixed race, but absolutely of mixed cultures. Um experiences and so on and so forth. Um, But what I've come to understand through the work and through my life is I, I, I tend to think about identity in politicized ways. Like a lot of the conversations I know that folks have about identity seem to to center around notions of choice right, that one gets to decide who they are, um, tend to focus on notions of genetic and and really white supremacist ideations of what race is. Um, but also given, you know, that we live in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, I'm also very clear that identity is so much bigger than just who I choose to be, you know, who I want mm-hmm. to understanding that identifying, like I could say, oh, I am first generation Ghanaian. I could say I am uh, American born New Orleanian. I could say a whole Cablin Asian as Thai. I could say a whole bunch of things. But when we are dealing with a particularly insidious ideology and institution, it does not benefit me or my people to identify as such. So I'm clear that to say that I'm black is a, a political choice. Um, and a political move. So that's that's where I am in terms of my own identity. Um, in terms of One Drop, I mean, the book was named um, in reference to the One Drop rule, as it's come to be known in the Americas. Um, I do uh, reference Bob Marley in the introduction because so many of us who grew up on reggae or familiar with reggae, we know reference uh, uh, to the song. But what's so interesting to me when I think about his story, you know, it's a tangent, but maybe we'll come to it is what I've, I've come to maybe uh, observe um, in folks who come from mixed race background that there tends to be a difference 
a little a little shift when one's mother is black versus yes when one's father is black for bob who grew up in jamaica with a very dark-skinned black mother when i listen to that song when he speaks of one drop he's not speaking of one drop in the ways that the u.s has constructed a genetic uh a definition of identity he's he's speaking of a drum beat and in so doing, he's speaking of culture, you know? And so for Bobby identified as an African, you know? Um, and so I just, I just find that interesting. And it's something I come back to that as much as One Drop speaks to the legislation and the history, mm-hmm. um, the experience I think is very much like that, that drumbeat. Right. I, I I also agree with the the idea, which for some reason has only been a recent conversation I started to see publicly, is the difference between a mixed black person who has a, a black mother versus a black father. Um, in my case, I, I describe myself as hierarchically mixed. I am black first, Japanese second, and then both of my parents are biracial, half white. Uh, my dad being half Caucasian British, and my mother being half Appalachian whatever that means, but essentially British, Scottish, et cetera. Um, I don't have a half white identity despite being half white technically uh, because I didn't have a white parent and I didn't, or I didn't have a parent governed by whiteness in the home, I guess, essentially my, um, my white grandfather was gone by the time I was around. And so we, it was, it was a very Japanese household on my mom's side. And on my dad's side, my British grandmother was around. And that was super complicated because of the way she fetishizes blackness and black Americanness. Um, so I do I describe myself as hierarchically black because I grew up predominantly in black spaces with black people. The people that I thought were beautiful, the people, the women that I idolized were dark skinned black women. So I did not know I was not a dark skinned black woman my whole life. I pretty much had to leave the hood and found out that everybody could saw this and was like, um, what are you? <laughs> Uh, so, so when I hear one drop, I associate one drop in a in a complicated way in which, in ha- if it's brought to me by a black person, I view it as acceptance, validation, and seeing. When I hear it from a person of white, uh, specifically, I think of it as, uh, a, depending on how it's presented, either fetishizing or putting me in my place, so to speak, or, or whatever. So I have I have different feelings on the word depending on who's saying the word. Um, and so, but I do cue it as a as an acknowledgement of mixedness. But that's because of my own personal experience and my personal access to to the term. Um, and so, in in flipping through your book, I saw some terms I had never seen before as as how it referred to um, mixed folks like octoroon, quadroon, things like that were things I was familiar with, but um, uh, and I hope I even pronounce it correct, graph, grafe, and sakatra, sakatra. I have I had never seen those descriptions before. And then I looked at this and I realized I wasn't on these pages all these times. I thought because I was, um, you know, essentially a quarter black, I, I thought I was I was like a quadroon. I didn't even think about the fact that I didn't have as much white in me as fits on these pages or that my Japanese kind of took me off of these pages. So I kind of want to ask about people that are like me, Uh, a triracial person who identifies predominantly as black, despite a very ambiguous appearance. When you were planning this book or or whatever touched you to make you want to explore this thing, were you encountering people like me? I know you're from New Orleans, so you probably encountered a lot of people that presented 
differently like I do and things like that. Was that part of the reason that you wanted to tell this story through pictures and people? Not necessarily. I mean, I think part of the reason uh, I started on this journey had to do more so with my own groundedness and blackness, given my training Mm -hmm. in black studies, what I come to understand or did understand blackness to be and how it was represented. And again, very much politicized. And then being on a panel uh, with Rosa Clemente, who identifies as a black Puerto Rican and being completely distracted because I had never at that time encountered someone who was Puerto Rican specifically, we could say generally Latinx, but I had never met someone who self-identified as black Puerto Mm. Rican. Like I knew, right, what a Puerto Rican ancestry represented, right? But I didn't hear, you know, I was more um, in tune with the idea that even given, being given the option of saying I'm Puerto Rican or Dominican or all these other kind of national identities was a way for a lot of folks to um, divert attention from their blackness, right? That they were trying to distance themselves from their blackness. So to say, you know, when the options are white and black and you say I'm Puerto Rican, right? Not mm-hmm. trying to get into either one of those. So to hear this woman identify as a black Puerto Rican, I was distracted and intrigued. And so speaking to her more, I wanted to to kind of delve into personal narratives about folks who are more like her. Because again, the identity is one thing, but I don't know the image that comes to your mind when I say Black Puerto Rican, whether Mm -hmm. you've been to Puerto Rico or not, right? So I also said it was important to add imagery, right? Because even as we talk about Blackness and whiteness, depending upon your lived experience and and your... um, uh, I guess, movement through the world, whether you've even been able to move through the world, right? Like we have our own ideas and ideations about what those identities look like. And Mm -hmm. so it was critical to me to make sure that there were pictures accompanying folk stories so that I didn't leave it to the reader to create an image in their mind. And so what I hear from so many folks who've read the book is that like I do, even when I look at the book, you read, you look at the picture, you read, you look at the picture, right? Because you're trying to connect those words with this body or this embodiment, right? And again, it's it's almost like mirroring, mirroring the experience that I had on the panel with Rosa. Like I hear the words that you're saying and I'm looking at your body, mm-hmm. trying to make these things fit, but they don't fit with what I've already experience or what I think I know. And so it's a constant, it's work, right? To make these words and these bodies go together. Um, So in that regard, it was, you know, it started from personal space, of course, wanting to make connection, but it was also um, healing and liberating for me personally, because it helped to I'm not going to say undo because it sounds a little bit dramatic and finite because it's not undone. Right. Mm-hmm. But it helped to reel back some of my experiences growing up dark skin mm-hmm. in New Orleans, um, in a community where so many people um, claim a Creole identity at the expense of a black one. And mm-hmm. so my experience have been that folks who are given options to not be black, take them. Mm. So many of the folks who I spoke to and the folks I chose to include in this project could have options and rejected them. Like they claimed their blackness. And so for me, I needed to know, right. That everybody who's light skin doesn't reject blackness. Everybody who, who's light skin doesn't reject me, that there is a love for blackness and, 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 you know, in a lot of ways, on the flip side, there are a lot of folks who 
want access to blackness and are kept out because of what they look like, you know? So again, it's, a, it's a new experience for me because, you know, up until that point, my experience, not only with identity politics, but also with colorism showed me one, one direction, right? That folks who are light-skinned, folks who have options don't want to be black. They're going to make up all these other words to avoid being black. And so I put them in a particular place, you know, mm-hmm. I put them, uh, you know, it, it determined the extent to which I even wanted to be bothered with them. You know, the extent to which right. uh, I could connect with them or would even leave room to connect with them. And so this work really kind of reeled me back to say, well, look, everybody who looks like the people who hurt you. Right. Don't don't necessarily think like the people who hurt you. So that's kind of how I, I uh, my interest in the book started. Thank you for explaining that, because that is something that I feel that I can explain, but I get really emotional in these moments um, because I do feel like I have a, an experience. And, and Teresa and Sonia have heard this from me. I have an experience that seems so different from other people who identify their blackness ahead of the other things. I'm very it's political, but it's super personal that I am black first, even though I look the way that I look. And I'm not denying that I look the way that I look, but um, I do look like my father. I just happen to be yellow, you know, things like that. I I grew up in a black space with black people. I was raised in a black church with, and things like that. So I can't help but center my blackness. And yet I am confronted outside of where I grew up, Not, not where I grew up, but outside of where I grew up, I am confronted by people who, like you're describing, center their light skin or find a way to maneuver around their blackness with different identities. And I just didn't have as clean a way of saying it because it was so personal to me that I was black first and that until I left the neighborhood I grew up in, I didn't have to scream for my blackness. And, And now the better part of my adulthood, I have had to scream for my blackness. And I, I appreciate one, that you were experiencing what you were experiencing to make you go and through this process and do this book, but that you actually totally validate everything that I feel. <laughs> like, exa- like in that moment, you, I've, I've never heard it validated quite the way, like that is a, that is a real experience that, that um, I, I have felt unusual and unique in that I, I didn't really that, want to. I feel think that it's way. also important. I, I, what I'm also hearing Dr. Blay is, you know, what, what I in in our in the mixed race community, uh, I feel like these conversations are important because some folks, you know, uh, want to identify and and self identify as all that makes up who they are. And what I'm hearing is that the receiver is could be hearing you're trying to remove yourself from being black. Oh, absolutely. And I. And 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 then asking, you know, like for myself, I was never black enough to be black or never Latina enough to be Latina. So I was always, you know, constantly wanting to save the receiver time for trying to understand who I was. Mm -hmm. So I was giving them all if I if I came at somebody and said, well, I'm black, then the question would be like, wait, what? How? What, you know, what is blackness and, and how do you describe blackness? And, and you talk about, you know, whether it's from mom or dad, you know, those kind of things. Um, and am I able to claim being black 
and and we and I think the mixed race community oftentimes struggles with with being accepted from you know black folks again like do I have to define who someone who is black so did you just start with the definition of who is black no I gave a history of how mm-hmm. blackness has been defined by this country as something to give us context, perhaps, of how we get here with particular language, the one drop rule um, for folks to understand, you know, how, how the world, how the census, how white supremacy thinks about blackness. But I don't I hope no one leaves the book with a definition of blackness like it wasn't my goal necessarily to define it. Um, you know, to create strict uh, a strict box. That, that wasn't my goal, what I wanted to do, because interestingly enough, I am unquestionably Black. Therefore, my Blackness has never been questioned. Therefore, I've never been challenged to engage in the exercise of defining Blackness. Whereas folks who don't look Black are always looking for language to describe their Blackness. So it was an interesting entry point to speak to folks who, quote unquote, don't look black and have them then tell not not as a way to like prove it to me. Right. Or to justify it to me, because I don't identify as a gatekeeper at all. But just to, you know, again, interested in, in how did you come to this identity? You know, how is it that you came to to claim your blackness in this way? And. You know, one of the very first questions I ask everyone is, how do you identify? And I use the language that they say, not what I would say, right? Because it's not up to me in that regard. Um, and so just just having a conversation about how they define, you know, their Blackness and what Blackness means to them. Yeah, I, I remember hearing a story uh, of that you shared on that, uh, on a different podcast about, you know, um, how in New Orleans, I think the birthday party you shared uh, about not being invited. And, and I think there's those kind of experiences that, you know, if we could, if we, if I, I've also not been accepted to the party. Do you know what I mean? And for the black party and, and, you know, and I think that's that I've struggled with that, sure. you know? Uh, so I, I found something very, um, you know, if we just learn to talk to one another, we each have those stories. And I think that's what's, what's key in, in having you on to kind of understand, you know, what, what folks are thinking and where they're coming from. And I think that's why this book is so valuable to, to, to understand, um, you know, your, your own identity and how you come, come to find that, uh, or define that. I mean, I think there are a lot of thoughts swimming in my head, but there's no, it's so much both and, right? Like on the one hand, if we recognize how toxic white supremacy is, I think for a lot of Black folks in a lot of ways, when we try to reimagine power, when we try to imagine revolution, so much of the ways that we define regaining and reclaiming power is just an imitation of whiteness to some degree, right? And what we know about white power and white supremacy is that it is toxic and oppressive and problematic. And so In fact, we have to reimagine power, right? That we shouldn't be trying to replicate that. And I say that to say, part of my experience of coming to terms, if that's the language I want to use, embodying my own self, is recognizing that I don't need other people's permission to identify how I do. Meaning, 
does my Ghanaian family see me as Ghanaian? They'll tell me all the ways that I'm American. And for a long time, I struggle with that, but they don't hold the power to identify me. I get the measures perhaps, right? I didn't grow up there. I didn't go to school there. I didn't have particular experiences. That's how they're identifying or coming to define Ghanaian. But they also don't know what it was like for me to grow up in America with the parents that I had, speaking the language that we did, eating the food that we did. That was not American, right? So claiming my identity based upon my experiences, I don't need someone else's approval. In the same way, New Orleans, I left New Orleans right before high school. So much of New Orleans identity. First question, what high school did you go to? If I say I didn't go to high school, I had an Uber driver tell me last year, he asked me what high school I went to. I said, I didn't go to high school. He said, well, then you're not from New Orleans. How do you negate <laughs> the 13 years previous? And then I moved back and lived for another. Like, how do you, how do you stranger, right. get to tell me who I am? Because once I moved up north, I was very clear that I was from New Orleans, not the mm-hmm. South, New Orleans. And so... I say that to say, because I was also thinking about something that you said, right, that I think it's hard for people to have honest public conversation, right? So for me to say honestly, yes, I was rejected by folks who were Creole. I was rejected by folks who looked a particular way. There was a woman in grad school who was walking around acting like those people I grew up with. And so I didn't fool with her. I didn't like her. We weren't friends. Um... I didn't fool with these people because they looked a particular way. Like there's so much admission, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, there's, there's just a lot there that I don't know that people are willing to do publicly because of the judgment that will likely come. So when you were talking and it just made me think, because I always have questions, even after doing this book and still doing this book and even here on this podcast, like I always have questions about like, what is mixed? And I don't seek to be a gatekeeper. I don't seek to tell anybody how to identify, but I continue to wonder, (laughs) like, Mm. I know what a white experience is. I don't know, but there's a white experience in this country, in this world. There's a black experience or multiple black experiences in this country, in this world. When I say I wonder what mixed is, it makes me think of this tweet that I shared, uh, On my Instagram last week, someone sent to me, and this is after Dante Wright's murder. And there's a white woman who tweeted that she was blown away. She found out that Dante Wright was biracial is the language that she used, that there was a part of her that had come to believe that her child's half whiteness would save him. Yeah. And my immediate response is, what is half whiteness? Mm. Right. Like when it comes down to it in the world that we live in, in the way, and this is what I mean about the political aspect of identity. Like I get, yes, identify how we choose to, but like when it comes down to it, those cops don't care yeah. about your gen- genetic background. It's like, what does your body present? How do they read your body? And so in that moment, it's like, what is a half white lived experience, mm. right? Or when when you identify as mixed, your mixedness may give you access to the Black community or to Black culture or to Blackness. It will never give you access to whiteness. So like, again, I'm just being honest. It's always that question of like, why are you holding on to the whiteness then? 
Mm, yeah, exactly. Right? And again, I admit, I it's not my lived experience. I could be skewed. I've only had but so many conversations with folks. But there's a part of me that just wants to like, you talk about aunties. There's a part of me that's <laughs> like, like, baby, let me come and tell you how this world works. Yes. What is what is half whiteness? That's Where, precisely the mission, I think. <laughs> what can you trade that in for? Those white people mm. don't want you. Mm-hmm. Like, when you access to whiteness, they don't claim you. We have historically, we haven't had a choice as black people. Right. You've always been one of us. People may struggle now, but historically, you've always had access to blackness, for better, for worse, right or wrong. White people don't, they yeah. never accepted you. This is where we get, they said, one drop, one drop of blackness would keep you out of whiteness. They said one drop, one, drop. one five generations back, whether I can see it or not, you can't come. Yeah. And you want, you, you, you want to hold on to that? And again, I'm just being honest. That's the auntie in me. That's where I struggle. And so that is why in my mind, it doesn't make any other sense in my mind or my lived experience that to identify as mixed then, right? is to distance oneself from Blackness, perhaps approximate whiteness, perhaps occupy this middle lane. It's confusing to those of us who aren't. Mm, right. Thank that you makes a that, lot of sense. Yeah. For that. It, it, you know, on the, on the uh, like, we could just be battling. We could just have this battle because from my end, I'm trying to say that you, you and the general you, don't are are you gonna accept are you gonna claim me will yeah. you claim me as do you know what i'm saying why does it matter right and you're absolutely right yeah and that but, is the question that i struggle with because i want a place yeah and i don't feel i don't what place can i feel that that you know and so i'm constantly trying to say you know, accept me, please. Yeah. Somebody accept me yeah. because this is what I feel inside. So, but if there is the skin, you know, the skin tone policing or the, uh, you know, uh, whatever the policing, the, the whoever the gatekeeper is, like, do I, how do I get in? What can I say to you to make you accept me for saying I am black. So and I think that's what the struggle is for, for some folks. No, no, I hear that. And that was definitely part of the conversations we had, you know, with the book. And again, just leaning into my own experience and coming to a place where it's like, I don't need other people's approval to, to, to describe what it is I feel and who it is I know myself to be culturally, you know, and otherwise. And so I hear, I hear that. I hear that. Uh, but again, it's, it, you know, it's that question of like, you know, why does it matter? I, I get why it matters. Why? But still, you know, it's. Yes. Why, why does and, it matter? I mean, you shared the Uber driver experience. Imagine on a daily basis how many Uber drivers we face, you uh-huh. know, on on this journey of mixedness. Uh-huh. And 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 it is real that there are, you know, I it's almost like we are heating you know, or heading off all the comments that come with, you know, with saying who you are. And and then if I do say I'm black, is my Mexican mother going to be like, girl, you better say you're Mexican, too. <laughs> you know, 
as you say that, what's interesting, I've had a few conversations of late in spaces where there are a lot of white women, um, many of whom are mothers, right, to mixed race children. And one thing that I said very honestly, one thing that came out in a lot of the stories, some of which, you know, everything didn't hit the page because some of it, it was a lot. These conversations were a lot. But so many people disclose, like, I was about to say trauma. That's my word. Mm. But yeah, so much tension and so much pain and so much guilt and so much shame around how they identify and worrying about what it's going to mean to their parent who's not Black if they mm. say that they're Black and not being able to have those conversations or to hear these white women, white mothers project, right? They're the ones who are out in the world saying, I have a biracial child. I have a mixed race child. What did your child say they were? Are you telling your child who they are? And again, not my experience. So I wonder what it looks like at the kitchen table, right? How do children come into their identity when they have parents of of different backgrounds? Is it a choice or is it a, a, what's the word? Not a sentence that's so dramatic, but like, you know, is the identity given to you? Right. It's just like, and I am who I am, too honest for my own good sometimes. But just how selfish is that? Yeah. How selfish is that to guilt your child into including you in their identity? You're not living their experience. Dante Wright's white mother was not in that car with him. Mm. She couldn't save him. How selfish is that? To project that onto your child and force that you be included and how they identify. What about how they live? What about how the world is going to see them? What about the spaces that they are going to seek acceptance into for whatever reason? Because whiteness does not allow you access to it. So how do you feel half white? And again, I'm owning, these are all my feelings. They're mine. They're the questions that I have. You're not off the mark, though. I mean, <laughs> like, honestly, you're not. Um, I I have a, a Japanese and white parent who denies her whiteness um, as part of her identity. Um, she accepts a black culture. And so she talks with a black accent. She uh, does black hair exclusively. She does not like white people. And so my blackness was always validated by my Japanese mother. My blackness was less validated by my black father because he was chasing the Britishness. He was centering the colonization of um, of his father's family, basically. And uh, but then I was raised in black spaces. So my my black identity is stronger. And the only reason why I identify publicly as mixed now is because I left the hood and people started to tell me. So I was centering people's view of my face. Like you said earlier, when you have those questions, I was black until I left Long Beach. When I left Long Beach, I became mixed. And it was because of how people perceive me and our natural inclination, I think, as people is to center others. I don't know why we do it, but I think a lot of us do. And so I even get this makes me so sad. It sucks. (laughs) Be dramatic, but it does. Like, I'm just sitting here like. If you were clear about who you were in Long Beach, don't you get to take her with you everywhere you go? She's still there, but she doesn't get permission. And I'm saying permission with the quotation fingers to maneuver in spaces. And and the thing is, like the the group you you grew up around, or at least in my particular case, accepted me as the blackest black that I could be, even with my yellow face. So it was a huge shock. 
to step out into a different space and suddenly realize that the world didn't perceive me as the super obvious black warrior queen that I was, you know, like I did not know the visual was going to do so much work. Because you need to make sense to other people. To other people. And that's what the struggle is. I have to make sense to you. Yeah. And that's the, you know, again, I go back to this part, this Uber driver who, you know, talked about your high school. If I am sitting in a car, you know, in an Uber and I'm saying I am black, he's going to be looking through the mirror like. And what else? What are you mixed with? But that's also how black people approach us as as, as mixed black people. Black people ask you, it what was are a you black mixed, mixed with? Yes, it yeah. was. Yes. They want white know. people ask you, what are you? Black yeah. people ask you what you're mixed with. And so that is a weird way of, of validating the blackness too. Um, but for me, I, I, I say that it's it's more personal than political, but the personal is political. Sure. Me being black is is the thing. I am mixed because the way other people perceive me and I created militantly mixed to continue to center my blackness because militantly tells a story that the rest of the word that mix doesn't necessarily tell. Um, even the shirt I'm wearing says mix and hell black. It's another way of se- centering other people's perspectives of my face. Like I might be mixed, but I am hella black and a person on the exterior is not going to take that away, but I still need to slide in that credential so that I can enter the conversation. That makes good sense. It makes me think of so many folks in the book who, you know, said mixed and, or, you know, mixed, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the mix is in there, but thank you for how you explained it in terms of like, I'm mixed because of how other people see me. It sounds like, you know, thinking of the Uber example, we keep going back to, it sounds like, what is it that I can say that'll make you stop talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is the thing. And we can walk away now, right? <laughs> right. But I appreciate that because it's also true with so many of these conversations that we have to like reserve our energy too, right? Like, am I going to sit here and have a 30 minute conversation with the Uber driver who I'm never going to see again? Or I'm just going to say the thing that'll make you leave me alone and save my energy for the conversations that matter. So no, that that's very helpful to me in terms of understanding. I think for a lot of us, However, there are a lot of mixed people who use mixed differently, right? That they're using uh, yeah, absolutely. To, to distance yeah. themselves. And I think that's more of what we presume when we hear folks identify um, as mixed. I think anybody um, that goes with the militant or the radical or 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 do like politicize their identity, I think it becomes a little bit clearer that we're doing our damn best to identify with our blackness. But the external forces are a big reason um, that we don't. And I'll honestly say that it wasn't until the first time I saw um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the the mixed bill of rights. Um, which was created by Dr. Maria uh, Root. And it's essentially just a thing that says, I identify the way that I identify. I can change that identity as, as needed or as comfortable for, spa- for safety or for, for my own purposes. I can identify differently than my siblings. I don't have it memorized, but essentially it's, it's something like this. I can identify differently than my siblings, than my parents, than my neighborhood, whatever it is. My identity is mine. 
and it, it can be fluid. Um, I would say that as a, as I've gotten older, my identity with mixedness has become a little bit more fluid, but I still ground and fight and put my blackness as a foundation because that is my foundation. That is who I grew up around. And so when we talk about mixedness, uh, I don't really want to gatekeep it either, but I would say that mixedness as a main definition probably has more to do with uh, race and ethnic identity and culture. You got to have both happening at the same time because a person like, um, let's say there is a black, white, biracial person who presents dark skin black, they're going to be black from the visual, right? But let's say they perform white <laughs> or, you know, someone is viewing their behavior as performing whiteness. They could have grown up in the suburbs around entirely predominantly white community. So in their particular case, their blackness is given credit based off their skin tone, but their culture is telling them they're white. Um, and so like in those kinds of cases that I think the mixed identity does need to have a, a sense of culture and the racial or ethnic identity, depending on what someone's comfort in. Like in my case, I don't think I have a race, but I do have ethnic groups that create this face. Um, but I can't click a form that makes sense. So I click black because that is my predominant identity. Um, well, that brings up a point for me. Who who would you say, Dr. Blay, is the who's reading? Who who's the audience for your book? Who who do you think? I mean, who's reading it? What what did you know? What do you hope they get gleaned from from the information uh, that these 70 interviews and um yeah tell us about that when i started the project uh my audience is always black folks um so when i started the project it was more so like look y'all look what i found out <laughs> right like <laughs> again if you don't have conversations with folks you don't know right so my audience is always black folks the audience um was also feeling like you deserve to see yourself, right? So that there are probably so many other people in the world who have these same feelings, but we don't allow space for them to communicate it. We just shut it down and say, you're not black and keep it moving, right? So to give them voice, you know, um, and to make them more visible, I think to, to folks who, who identify similarly. Um, now the book's acquired by Beacon and is re-released seven years after um, I, I released it independently. It's interesting. Um, I will say that I'm a little surprised. I, I think the predominant audience in this moment is white folks. And it might have to do with the time that we're in. Uh, mm -hmm in quarantine post George Floyd's assassination where everyone uh, is attempting to be anti-racist and uh, so many folks want to learn more about the Blacks. I think that uh, that's part of the reason perhaps there's heightened interest because the book has made so many lists. You know, folks love lists. Tell me what to read. Um, so, um, but at the same time, there are a lot of folks it's interesting. It's interesting because, again, my audience is usually Black folks, but it's interesting. I'm also becoming more interested in the kinds of questions that the book um, sparks amongst mm -hmm. white people. These aren't things that they've ever had to think about. So many folks don't even know about the one drop rule. Mm. Just never heard of it. So many folks have never heard of the loving case. Like, oh my God, this was just 60 years ago. Yes. It was just 60. You know, like these are histories that they've never had to learn or confront, you know? They didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to have folks, you know, act like I've uncovered some deep, <laughs> dark hidden history. They just have to yeah. learn 
Devin had to face it. Or just so, I mean, it's definitely sparking some very interesting um, dialogue. For sure. But one thing that I will say, and I I think that's also important, maybe something for y'all to talk about at a later date, that I think this book is a conversation about uh, racial identity to some degree, right? Cultural identity to some degree. And for folks who are confused because my background and my work and my expertise is in colorism, it's so interesting for many folks, me doing this project was confusing to them, right? Because my mm. colorism, and I think for some folks, they thought perhaps I was giving light-skinned folks a pass somehow. Um, there's a distinction between, they're connected, but this doesn't change the reality of colorism, right? Right. To validate Black identities in a variety of presentations does not invalidate the reality of colorism, right? We didn't touch upon the privilege that also comes with the particular embodiment, right? That's very real, doesn't negate it, right? So to validate your Blackness, to affirm that, yes, okay, I hear you. This is how you identify, cool, does not say, that does not make you colorist, (laughs) does not say that, okay, yeah, you don't have privilege, right? These are different conversations. These are different, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll have you back for that one. <laughs> seriously. I mean, seriously, because we can, we have it and, you know, it's something we talk about, obviously, all the time. Um, but I think it would be, if you're ever, you know, in, soon or when you're available, I think it would be valuable because that's another space where you have a lot of expertise and a lot of experience at um, very eloquently presenting it uh, for consideration. And, and you're a thought leader in that space and one that I think brings a lot of value. So just, you know, put a put a pin on that. We'll be we'll be reaching out later on. Well, right. Well, it- <laughs> It, it's because, you know, you said that and I know you it's one of the things that we talk about and not all, I mean, here in the auntie group, but in our communities, at what point can we, you know, do we need to step back as mixed black folks and give the space? And, and when can I have a voice? At what point can I talk to black issues and can I be just as heated and angry as as, you know, as someone who is darker toned than myself? You know, it's very complicated. You know, when we go to march and and protest and fight, I mean, I got chills just thinking. I mean, I do I get that? Do I can I? I don't know. It's very complicated because. It's complicated. I think what I can say as a dark skinned woman, I've had this conversation with a friend who is one of the smartest people I know, has so much to talk about when it comes to colorism and skin color politics. But for her in recognizing her privilege and recognizing that her body is a trigger, she falls back. Mm, I I say that too. One thing to fight for it is another thing to demand that you be the leader. Mm. Absolutely. Right. So in the same ways, when we have conversations about mediated images, right, and I hear so many Black actresses of mixed heritage, you know, acknowledge colorism, but also that same question, but I'm also a talented actress, does that mean that I shouldn't work? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't work at all, but do you have to be the mom? Again, again, you have to be the black person. Like, you know what I mean? I feel like that's what it means to navigate the space of privilege. What are you going to do with your privilege? Right. So, If the white folks are going to bring you to the table, can you check them on our behalf? 
since you're getting access to the table, or are you only going to just say, well, let me continue to represent Black folks? You're not an adequate representation of all of us. And so that's why your body is the trigger. That's why you are the one who's going to receive all the heat. It may not be right. It may not be fair. We don't have access to the people, the executives. But you're out here saying that you're a representation of us. And you trigger, it's a, it's a history. We don't get, this is why everybody's in love with Issa Rae. This is why everyone is in love with so much independent media. Because it's, it's, it's revolutionary and yet so basic. Mm. And yet yeah. so basic. I, I absolutely agree. I also think that's why when cases of like Amandala, um, oh shoot, Stein. I forget her her last name. She was tapped to be Shuri in and originally in the Black Panther movie, but she's biracial. She's light skinned, and she said, "That's not my place." Wakanda is a non colonized, you know, fictional African country, and light skinned me wouldn't make sense in that space. Plus, her mother and her brother are dark skinned in a non colonized space. I don't make sense, and she bowed out. And that was the most important thing she could have done. I also wish it hadn't happened. Like simultaneously, I'm glad she bowed out. I wish she hadn't been offered the role. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yes, think about it, right? So in the same way, it took years for Zoe Saldana to apologize for taking mm. that role. She should not have taken that role. They had exactly pathetic makeup on her. Mm-hmm. They deserve so much more, so much more. That's what it means to do something with your privilege. Say no, check them. How dare you cast me in that? Right. When I think of Oprah's rendition of Their Eyes Were Watching God, how dare you cast Michael Ely as Tea Cake? Mm-hmm. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read that book and read how Zora Neale Hurston describes the beauty of Tea Cake's black skin and you cast Michael Ely? Light skin with blue eyes? How dare you do that to Zola? How dare you? That's what it means to do something with your privilege. It's to read the work and say, nah, B, that's not me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do not represent that blackness. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so these are the, like, I think there's more meat in the conversation that we don't address oftentimes. And it just seems like we're saying to all folks who are racially ambiguous or light skinned that, no, you don't get to play us at all. No, not saying that at all. But it's the fact that you're always you're always it happens on the asian side too with asian and white biracial folks they're the ones who get to be the palatable asian latinx too you know latin Latin. we talk about palatable black palatable whatever like they absolutely impacts how we see the world i used to live in south philadelphia and and people still think about it as black philly there are so many southeast asians but i'm talking about filipino cambodian the browner Asians and people still regard that area culturally like a black space, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right? But to see someone whose skin is almost as dark as mine from Cambodia, where would you see that on TV? Mm-hmm. How many of us are going to Cambodia? And also, mm-hmm. you wouldn't see it in media from those countries. No, and then that's right. exactly right. Because which Cambodia do we want to project? Right. Same with Brazil. Same with so many places. And I say that only because for so many Americans, we do not leave America. And if we do leave America, we're going to resorts. And those are, you know, isolated spaces as well. And so we don't get to see the people. Exactly. 
And so you don't know that we're actually not minorities. I hate that language. I don't use it. We're not minorities. We're two thirds of the world. Mm -hmm. You don't get into the world and you only rely upon the media to show you yourself. You wouldn't know that. And that's how white supremacy functions. It's strategic and intentional. Always, always. And diabolical. And diabolical. (laughs) Right? I mean, this has been the most I, I I really feel like we need to continue to have conversations like this because, mm-hmm. you know, what could be it, there's so much to learn from one another and and understanding and and just sharing of who we are and, and listening. And um, I, I thank you for for the work and the body of work that you've done and are doing and continuing to do for allowing conversations like this to 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 happen and uh, for allowing us to share, you know, space and time and, and our, our our lived experience. Um, I think it's important. Uh, how can we find you? How can our readers find you we are going to leave everything um but what is the best way for them to 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 find you and reach out i think you can link to everything um through my website which is yabablay.com on social i'm at yabablay but my name will get you (laughs) there's only one me Yes, we will absolutely. Put all of that in the show notes. Um, I know we ran a little bit long, but thank you for for sticking with us through it. Um, this has been extremely meaningful, and I'm so glad that this is the way that the mixed aunties are uh, coming out of the closet <laughs> uh, on the on the first the uh, first round off. of this. Yes. Um, I, I it is it is so meaningful, and I I really think that having this conversation in this particular space because it is a, a mixed space, there are things that our community don't see or don't understand either, and they're focused in just the way it, it perceived from their experience and and having this i think will will shake that up Thank for a you. lot of people and i'm 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 about that let's let's go ahead and shake up all that stuff <laughs> um so i i do absolutely appreciate you and we will put a link in the show notes of all of where you can get the book and all that kind of stuff well let me also just say that i think the thing that's important you know if we are to set a model for continuous conversations like these is that we also have to be intentional and deliberate about making it a safe space. Yeah. Right. For folks to be honest, to not yeah. feel like it's about to be, you know, waving the red flag to get jumped on or cussed out or what have mm-hmm. you. Like being vulnerable, but also being in a space that you can trust, you know, that I'll hear you and I'll hold that. I don't like it, but please say it so we can do something with it. So we can know? do the work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. For sure. I want to say thank you. I knew that. I was going to love this conversation. I'm loving it more than I expected. But the thing that I didn't expect um, is that I'm very teary right now. So that in, in the most beautiful ways, in the most beautiful, positive, powerful ways. And and so we might just make you, you know, I mean, first of all, you're already an auntie in the world, <laughs> as we all are in the world. But we'd like to, you know, um, offer you any time. I think I can speak for all of us. Anytime you can hit us up if there's (laughs) something you'd like to process. By the way, you can process it with us publicly like this or privately on one of our private calls. Serious, very seriously. We'd like to offer what we bring because sometimes and then sometimes we might hit you up and go, yo, you got five minutes (laughs) because you know what I mean? If that's okay, because I mean, I'm feeling the power here I'm feeling is connectiveness and the diasporic, you know, the fact that we are family. 
that we're branches and leaves and flowers, but we're family and the connectedness. And the thing I think that we, I know that we all have in common is we are all about fighting white supremacy slash dominance and racism. We are all about fighting anti-blackness and we're all committed to that in our personal, professional and creative lives and spaces. And I think that's one of the, and it's one of the reasons I love and trust uh, Charmaine and Sonia so much. And um, you know how I feel about you. So, but I just want to say, this is very moving to me. The connectivity I've witnessed just here, the spontaneity, of course, like all good professionals, we had all kinds of questions planned and sessions <laughs> timed and everything else but the flow was like the, yeah. best, <laughs> the best jazz music right it just flowed and it was organic and incredibly powerful and moving so big hugs to you as always yes thank, thank you thank you so so much thank you thank you thank you Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.